0: Welcome to the Archive Room podcast. This is episode 2, first broadcast on Manx Radio on the 25th of August. It's a collection of stories of Manx life in years gone by, told by the people who were there. Faster my, Judith Lay, here opening the door to the Archive Room. And if you're interested in stories about our island and like meeting great characters, then you're going to love spending the next half hour in the archive room. Come on in, sit down and relax. Tonight we're exploring old Douglas, firstly in the company of a man who was taken to live on Douglas Head Road in 1906 when he was just six weeks old and he remained there for the rest of his life. He is Lewin Kane, in his mid-80s when this recording was made, and we join him walking round Douglas Harbour, telling David Collister about the very different landscape and life that he remembers growing up there in the early 1900s.
1: Where the bus station is now, that was a series of lanes, hideouts, cottages, and you name it. One story comes to mind of a policeman, Charlie Ford, and the lane in question was called Seneschal Lane and he was on beat this night and he found a horse dead in the middle of the lane but seeing as how he couldn't spell Seneschal, he dragged the horse to 4th Street <laughs> <laughs> that's true that yes. he was a big man I knew him well Charlie a big heavy man
2: what did these people do that lived in that area then were they mostly working on the quay in this area roundabout?
1: There was lots of work, but there was no work outside. We'd say once you got up as far as when Hillsley Road was called, Siberia it was called Hillsley Road. From there on, it was mountains, yeah. nothing. Not, not a building of any sort on it. Uh, the result was all the work was down here. Cregan's was the main dealers, the gas company, the Gelling's Foundry, Moulding Shop, Knox's, the engineers, all them. All the work was down in this area, those that had work. And those that hadn't, well, they were at the fishing or the sailing. I was sailing with my grandfather and we were trading all over and I was eight years of age, all down the Irish coast, all up the border area, every little harbour that's up there now, I've been in it at some time or other. What, fishing or...? or no, thing? trading. Yeah. Salt, herons, turnips, potatoes Man. and bringing back ballast. And the funny thing is when you were loading ballast at the shilling a ton. You can understand what work was.
2: That's hard and heavy work, isn't it?
1: Hard and heavy work for the men. I was only the ship's cat.
0: (laughs) I was blamed for everything that went on on that boat. Quite an experience for an eight-year-old in the years before the First World War. But we're back on the harbour now, where Lewin and David are discussing pubs, past and present.
2: Two pubs in front of us there, the Clarendon and the Douglas. Yes. There's still quite a lot of pubs along there but apparently we had a lot more than that, did we?
1: You had uh, a lot of pubs there in all right around the quay side to up as far as the Storm Bridge and down to the Trafalgar on the South Quay. There were 22 pubs. Is that Isn't so? That? Yeah, it's true. You started off with the steam packet, at the Royal and then you had three together on the corner of Walpole Avenue, the Masonic, the Mansion, Liverpool Arms, and the Oddfellers Arms. The Sheffield was on the corner of Fort Street, and then you moved up the quay here, and you've got the same old pubs here, yeah. the Clandon, the Douglas, the Market, and the Albert. They're all there. And then over in Cambrian Place, where the Widows' Houses was, you had the Crown, and there was all sorts of dives in there too, where yeah. you were never short. Mind you, beer was six a pint.
2: <laughs> then you, as you go along the Quay, I mean, still some of those pubs are still there as well, of course.
1: Oh yes, the Bridge and the Saddle
2: yeah.
1: and the Waterloo. These pubs you're
2: talking about would just be a, a room or two, uh, oh, just a smoker yes. really? Would
1: they? L- little pubs, but uh, they had their own clients
0: from all walks of life. But someone else had very different memories of the South Quay and Douglas pubs. Catherine Cowan became a published author at the age of 92, with the release of Alice's story, the story of Alice and Robert, Catherine's parents, a fascinating book that we'll return to next week. But in a conversation that David Collister had with Catherine about the contents of the book, the subject of places of refreshment on Douglas South Quay cropped up.
2: One of the things you write about is the coffee palace on the North Quay in Douglas. After your father died, your mother decided to take this coffee palace.
3: Uh, no, the people who had the coffee palace were asked by the... The Temperance Committee. the Temperance people, yes. yes the Temperance Committee, in fact, yes. yes, they were asked by the military to provide their sergeants with a club room in the coffee palace. Mm. And uh, the Temperance people were delighted with this because they thought that the, this had been rigged up in the first place to be a good temperance retreat, Mm. and uh, it had fallen into disuse. Now, this was a chance to make it uh, useful again for the uh, temperance.
2: The temperance movement. Movement, yes. But there was a lot of pubs down there, wasn't there?
3: Oh, it was crammed with (laughs) squalid little uh, pubs. Just uh, cheat by jowl was the only way to put it. You refer to smelly key hobblers in this. What what were they then? Ah, now, the key hobblers were men who frequented the quayside doing nothing. They were called hobblers because they didn't have shoes. They had bare feet. Yes. And they were the key hobblers. They picked up bits of coal from the ships when they were being unloaded. Then they would sell the coal off that had fallen from the carts uh, onto the quayside.
2: This coffee palace was nothing of a palace then when your mother saw oh, it.
3: Oh, no. It was dreadful. Oh, it was dreadful.
2: You right about vermin running around and so on, don't oh, you? Oh,
3: yes. Oh, it, it stank.
2: So she must have been quite a tough woman to take it on, in fact.
3: Uh, well, she needed the money. She was horrified by it, absolutely horrified. But.
2: Uh, she made a go of it, though,
3: didn't she? Oh, yes. She had a very good way of... Delegating jobs to the right people And uh, this stood her in very good stead Do do you ever
2: remember having coffee in the coffee palace?
3: Oh no, I must tell you It was called the coffee palace Nobody drank coffee in the island in those days Coffee was strange (laughs) It was all tea, great tea urns Enormous tea urns uh, filled with hot water Kept being topped up with hot water but no coffee.
2: You refer to yourself in the book as Kiri then, don't you? Yes. Was that a sort of nickname?
3: Um, no. When I was born, I was born in a snowstorm. And my father, the first time he saw me, he said, uh, Kiri for Nyachtha. which is sheep in the snow. Yes. And I was always called Kiri. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. <laughs> I still am by my
0: nieces. No longer auntie, just Kiri. Catherine Cowan, who was 92 at the time of that conversation, and that little story about Catherine's family nickname leads us nicely back into more stories from Lewin Kane. still on Douglas Harbour with David Collister, talking about local characters and how they got their nicknames. They all had nicknames,
1: like Johnny Phil Ginny. He was one, an awful character. There was uh, Ned Oxy... He was a ragabone man. You could hear him calling, "Ragabone, ragabone, rabbit skins, bottles and jars." That was his call. Yeah. And then there was Johnny Putty, who was selling papers. I remember Johnny. Well, he would he sound, "Paper, paper, big boat in the bay," and you would say, "What boat is it, Johnny? Buy the paper and find out." <laughs> that right. was his call.
2: Yeah.
1: And uh, of course, there was Kelly the knife grinder. There was uh, Pegleg Kayley. Now Pegleg Cayley, thats an intriguing name. Well, he had just a stump, a stump for his right leg, a round stump, no foot on it or nothing, just a stump. Yeah. But he was the most powerful coal trimmer I think I've ever seen, and uh, he—I watched him trim and coal in Knowles's coal yard, which is where the steam packet engine shop is now. And where other men would take three trims to get the coal to the top, he could throw the coal up there in one go, but yes. there was always a pint bottle of ale standing alongside of him on the ground.
2: <laughs>
1: one can't imagine, unless you got photographs of the bus station as it was in those days, you would yes. be lost in it. Yes. But what was the quality
2: of life like for these people then?
1: Poor those that hadn't any money or hadn't any work, there was only the soup kitchen. There was no dole as we know it today. Mm. No public relief, just the soup kitchen. And what they could scrounge.
2: Well, we've come down now to the bus uh, depot end of the quay here. And this then Lewin is where there used to be open markets.
1: Yes, the concrete where these cars are standing now, the first draw near the quay, was open market and the stalls were there and there was every type of stall you could imagine the fish were lying on the concrete and uh, the big cods that were coming in those days, big jack cods and on the saturday night nobody wanted them, there was no electric, no fridges you could buy a jack cod, big one for a tanner that's the truth but the rest were oyster stalls you'd see people standing by and the oyster would be opened up Pepper and salt put on them and vinegar and gone, disappeared. Yeah. There was uh, Mrs Lindsay, Jimmy Lindsay's mother. She had the weighing machine and uh, you got weighed and also got a packet of little sweets for your penny or whatever it cost you on the scales.
2: Was it a busy market then?
1: Oh, very busy. I believe one or two people kept a cow or two in the town as well. But... Well, nearly all your milk was kept in the town. Big Well Street. Uh, I remember Watterson's having cows in Big Well Street albert watson had cows in drinkwater street and as far up as westview neans had cows kept in the back of westview yeah. and everywhere you went you could get milk and that's the only way you got it you had to go and collect your milk then. collect your milk unless you were lucky enough to find a farmer who had a cart with a ur- churn on it uh-huh. and he would turn the tap on and give you a pint whatever you wanted
2: Right now what about grocery stores then i mean oh, there were there plenty
1: of those groceries were everywhere yeah even down on the south Key by the swing bridge Gussie crane who later became a mayor of this town had a, a grocery shop on the other side of the quay uh, right alongside of woodhouse terrace so you could
2: get anything and everything provided you had the money for it
1: provide you had the money you could get what you wanted the characters i've known and met in this town it's a job to remember them all. Tell
2: me about some of them because you've had a narrow well, shave or two with some of them, haven't you.
1: Yes. Well, if you can imagine Shaws Brow back of Battle Street, and down to what we call Little Hell, that came right down onto Barrack Street. Little Hell. Little Hell. It was a dive where you wouldn't dare come down at night time. But I remember one time when I was. It was about 1924 and I was sent down by my boss to repair a sink in a house in Little Hale. In this room, there was a round table, three legs on it, and two occupants sitting on boxes and they were drinking methylated spirits. Well, I got on with my job, but I heard the knife grinder machine coming down the steps. From Athol Street, there were three sets of two steps and then a stop. And then there were six steps, and a flat. And it stops at the six steps, and the gentleman came in through the door, and he saw the lady and the other fellow drinking methadone spirits, and he shouted, is my so-and-so dinner ready? And she said, no. Well, I'm going to the wheat, for a pint, he said, and when I come back, if it's not on that table, I'll cut your throat, and yours, he said to me. I never got out of the house so quick in my life. left of the gear and everything else belonging to it (laughs) and I know those two parties scale Auckland was one of them yes and the other was a widow of ill repute Uh so this was an area then that you'd call a no-go area was it it was a no-go area as uh, they were all people that hadn't virtually nothing so you'd get mugged with you or what oh you'd be mugged and nobody would know what happened to you and the amazing thing is it was almost next door to the police station. So the police were still patrolling, just to say? Oh, yes, yes, but police wouldn't go down to a little hell at night either. You didn't know what was going to happen to you down there. You could be ditched, you could be dropped into a boat, and good night, Josephine.
2: You're not telling me people were being murdered down there, then?
1: Well, there was a murder, but it was in the back of Timble Street. I remember that very well indeed, and one of the occupants I've just been speaking about had been involved in that. And I remember as a boy going up and seeing the blood-stained hand mark on the door of this garden at the back of Timber Street, where the lady was murdered. Yeah. And her name was Mrs. Quayle. How How long ago was that then? Uh, it's about about nineteen, eighteen or nineteen, as far as I can remember. Yes. But uh, it happened on a Sunday night. She was up feeding her hens and uh, she was murdered.
2: Was the murderer discovered, was it?
1: They had suspicions, right? I can't remember if ever been... got by the police and taken into custody.
2: Well, it's called Shaw's Brow today, but uh, you called it the brew, did you?
1: Shaw's Brew, we called it, and there was a court in there, Athol Court, and nearly all the people that worked in... that lived in Shaw's Brow, both in Athel Court and the downside part of Shaw's Brow, worked in Quiggins, either in the timber yard, or in the rope works, mm. or in the railway.
2: Now, there were one or two organ grinders and battle organ people as well, weren't there?
1: Yes, there was Flerio, and he, he isn't of Italian origin. That man used to go about playing with an organ with a leg on it. The leg used to drop down to take the weight of the organ, and mm. he'd be turning it with his hand.
2: Yes, yeah, like a hurdy-gurdy. Like track. a
1: hurdy-gurdy. All around the town, you could hear a Yes. And, of course, there were two or three blind people with concertinas. There were no shortage of music all around the town. Battle organs, concertinas, accordions. So
2: they made a living at this, did they?
1: Yes, they? Yes, the people put money in their, their, bo- their pocket or their hat thrown on the floor. Now on, on, in Woodhouse Terrace down on the Quay, you had, you had about eight families living in there. They all staffed the Fort Ann Hotel, mm-hmm. in the kitchens, in the dining room, in the bedrooms. But, having, having said that, the menfolk worked either in the foundries or in the coal boats. Yeah, yeah. There was the Cowans and the Turtons and the Neils and the Cavannas. But in, in one family of Neils, they were all redheads. Yes. And each one in turn had a different name. There was Ginger, there was Rusty, and there was Copper. Those are the names yes. to define each boy. <laughs> that carried on for a long time. Did it, you have a nickname yourself? No. Just Lewin. <laughs> yes.
0: Lewin Kane sharing stories about life on Douglas North and South Keys in the early 1900s. Alfie Gilmore, who was born in 1915, grew up in rural Spring Valley, living on a country lane that led through the nunnery grounds and out towards Lee Terrace. Alfie and his three brothers went to Coaig's school, and his childhood memories will feature in a future programme. But now we're going to hear a little about his early working life, first as an apprentice at Todd Hunter and Elliot. And those days, of course, as an apprentice, you just
4: said, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full. Mm. You, you had to be obedient and pay attention to what was going on. And as a matter of fact, uh, you may not think so now, but I was rather a timid type because I was thrown in the deep end. I, I hadn't any experience. like other the fellas, they got the lads, raid in town. I was red in the country, shy type, and, of course, you go to work many a time and, if you had your hat on, you took your hat off before you got to the house, for pay respect, so wipe your feet with it many a time before you <laughs> went in. It this, this was discipline, you see. Mm. And a uh, big Jimmy Taggart and I, one day, we went to a house, Tremessery Lodge, bottom of a Blackberry Lane, to do something or other in the kitchen, probably a burst water pipe. And the lady answered the door, of course, very nice person, and she said, oh, come in. She said, I'm glad to see you, this, that, and the other. And she said, uh, this is a parrot, he said, and we'd like to sit this parrot in the sun, on this table because a nice sunshine coming through the window. And by the way, gentlemen, she said, this parrot doesn't have anything to do with swear words. This is a house where there's no swearing. We're good living types here. Oh, well, that's all right, said Big Jimmy. As far as we're concerned, there'd be no swearing from us. And and she looked at me, and I just nodded my head in agreement, you see. So after a while, Jimmy Taggart had been down to the parrot at the cage, saying something to him, I didn't know what on earth he was saying to it. Well, after an hour or so, the lady come in to see, did we want a cup of tea or that, which was a good thing those days if you got a cup of tea on the job. And uh, when she come in, she, uh, she says to Jimmy Taggart, how are you gone on? And the parrot immediately says, you're a stupid booger. <laughs> the lady in the house whipped round and looked at the parrot straight away and she said what did you say and the parrot said you're a stupid bugger <laughs> well of course I was nearly fainting myself because i didn't—I ne- never even looked at the parrot <laughs> oh. I know now that it was Jimmy Taggart that even that's he what was, he'd been saying he'd been saying to the parrot i the you're a stupid bugger well you'd both been in trouble with <laughs> you oh right yes she said I've good mind she said oh the no, oh, how's oh, the house oh no he says you can't do that he says think Jimmy Taggart says I'm Awfully sorry. It must have been the young feller. I'll chastise him when we go off the job. Well, I was shivering. They're blaming it, you. It, blaming me. It must have been the young feller. He says, <laughs> and "I wouldn't say boo to a goose. Never mind the blue and parrots." <laughs> she said she complained to Mister Harvey and Mister Kennick and Mister Quilliam, who were the three directors. Whether <laughs> she did or not, I've forgotten. But of course, on the way out. You know, Jimmy Taggart had one or two other words to say to the parent before we left. Whether (laughs) it was stronger language or not, I don't know, but we never worked at that. That was a second time. (laughs) When we got to the bottom of Somer Hill, you know, to get the horse car back along the promenade, that was transport those days. That was your transport those days. When we got to the bottom of Somer Hill, big Jimmy Taggart says, Well, did you enjoy the joke, Alfie? And I said, What joke, Mr. Taggart? It had to be Mr. Taggart, yeah. he was a senior. Mm. I said, What joke? Well, he says, Did you enjoy the parent Square? And I said, Well, I didn't, really because I got the blame. <laughs> well, he says, Somebody had to get the blame. He said, You learn, he said, You learn, said, you learn boy, you learn. <laughs> oh, well, I took the blame.
0: Apprentice Alfie Gilmore, learning life's lessons the hard way but he too can recall some colourful characters from his younger days.
4: There were good characters around the town and villages those days. I was still living in Spring Valley, of course. I wasn't married. I was still in Tottenham as an apprentice. But i always remember uh, a builder's labourer by the name of uh, Bob Bell. He was a, he was a mason's labourer, mm. uh, and uh, he was called Buster Drum. Buster Drum, he was called, and I thought, well, "Why, Buster Drum?" You see, and of course, the lads told me, and this is quite, quite true, that Bob Bell, at one time, he'd been in the Salvation Army, and he was fond of going on the on the booze every now and again. And of course, <laughs> when he went on the booze, he was drummed out of the Salvation Army. Oh. Then, of course, he was he made a promise and he would signed the pledge and he signed the pledge and he rejoined the Salvation Army. Right. Well, this particular night, he was on the promenade. And he was spouting the odds how good the Salvation Army were. And mind you, the Salvation Army are good, there's no doubt about that, but a good organisation they are. And how sorry he was that he'd made a fool of himself by going on the hill. Mm -hmm. And they, 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 uh, they brought him back into their fold and he was quite happy. Happy, he says. I'm so happy, he said. I could bust this ruddy drum. And he did. He jumped on the drum with joy and he was drummed out again for good. (laughs) (laughs) He was drummed out for good. Buster drum he was called ever after. Yes, and Mm -hmm. also of course uh, there were other uh, characters around the town too. There was Ben Cooley, I I may have told you there was Ben Cooley, there was Rock and Moldy, there was Fat Jack, He he was a nice old boy he was Fat Jack of course, and Scare Lachlan And, of course, we knew all these characters, and Bella Dole, and they all slept out. They were tramps, but they were quite, quite harmless, Mm. quite, quite harmless. They used to live, or sleep up at the three hedges at Paul Rose. Up there they slept. They used to take galvanized sheets off the uh, tip. The tip was going those days, Mm. before Paul Rose houses were built, and just getting built. And uh, they slept up there, but they were quite harmless.
0: Thank you, Alfie Gilmore, Catherine Cowan and Lewin Kane, And of course, sincere thanks to the late David Collister, without whose hard work all these wonderful stories might otherwise have been lost. And my personal thanks to Manx Radio's archivist, Tim Price, who's selecting the topics for this series. In the archive room next week, we'll be staying in Old Douglas. Alfie Gilmore has a career change, but the adventures seem to follow him. Tennis comes to Douglas in a big way and we get a taste of holiday making on Douglas Head. That's in the Archive Room just after six next Thursday evening or listen at your leisure to the podcasts. Go to manxradio.com and search for The Vault. There you'll find all available episodes of the Archive Room and lots more from the Manx Radio Store of Nostalgia. But as we close the archive room door for this week, this is Judith saying thank you for listening and stay with us. It's Mike Reynolds' greatest hits next here on Your Manx Radio. And the last word is a vintage sign-off. But can you put a name to this voice?
1: Anyway, till next week. So long, you yes, sir.